Thank you for listening to me, Russell Brand, on this Luminary Original podcast, Under the Skin. This week we're speaking to Glenn Greenwald, who of course broke the Edward Snowden stories and has been, well, winning Pulitzer Prizes and doing groundbreaking investigative journalism ever since. He left his uh, the organisation he set up, The Intercept, and nearly has a cardiac arrest when discussing that subject. Yeah, That's- you were amused. I was amused by how intense, because what I saw then is how, it, in, like, it's obvious that Glenn Greenwald's an intense guy, but I really enjoyed seeing that intensity when he, when discussing how the Intercept, a media organisation he set up, censored his reporting, specifically about the Hunter Biden laptop stuff. It's fascinating, you know, like, and wherever you are politically, and I suspect if you're listening to Under the Skin, where you generally are is democracy is a too limited framework within which to, thank you very much for this toucan mug of coffee, Charlie, a too limited framework to uh, to call the, the meagre offerings democracy, then you'll be interested to hear how the media, social media, and presumably the establishment behind the Democratic Party collaborated to keep that story out of the news. Why are you touching your face like that? I almost sneezed. <laughs> why, why would you almost sneeze, Jen? Because I was like, don't sneeze when he's doing his thing. <laughs> what, so you brought up your little raggedy digits? <laughs> like in the olden days, when remember when he Have you ever seen a mouse hand? Yes. Your hands are like a mouse hand. <laughs> oh, that's better than what they used to be called. What were they? Trotters? Claw hands. What were they? Claws. Claws? Yeah. Oh yeah, well because the two fingers they're unnaturally long. <laughs> they're not I would say spindly. Long. I think they're I could be a hand model. Well, yeah, on another planet. On a on planet chopstick <laughs> finger. They might welcome those no. spindlers. Mouse hands. Mouse hands, thin sausages. Yeah. <laughs> thin, thin Sausages are associated with fat hands. I know. I can't think of what I would use. Like sort of long sort of pencils. <laughs> tentacles. Hmm. I like hands. <laughs> you do like hands. You like hands. One of my favourite things on people. So then, if they don't have nice hands, it's like the chin. The what about these babies? They're good hands. You they're like- not as long as you think. What do you mean they're not <laughs> Based as long? On your height. <laughs> See this bit? Look at the palm. You do this a lot. You're very pointy with the first finger. Pointy first finger. <laughs> I never point at people with the fourth first finger. <laughs> bad manners if you point at someone use the whole hand give them a palm point you rub your nose a lot with your first finger do I? yeah you're always rubbing the bridge of your nose you're over there observing me aren't you like I'm in a, this little booth where I do my podcast to you it's like an aquarium with a man in it an aquarium. for a long time man aquarium. what you've been watching me for a long time yeah, because I did all your videos. And when you was 15, when you was watching me on Big Brother's Big you Mouth. You stroking your nose that then. I was busy. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot on, Jen. There's no time for stroking the old nose when you've got to commentate on the antics in the Big Brother house. I think I came on... I've been thinking about Big Brother for some reason. I came on on season three, I think. Now, do you remember me before I yeah, had all black eyeliner? you had eyeliner? jeans and yeah. a T-shirt and you wore flip-flops. I did, didn't I? Yeah, your teeth were slightly different. Crookeder. Your hair was shorter, and it had a natural volume to it. There hadn't been loads of product in it yet. These were innocent <laughs> times. One time, I think it must have been before I started dressing as a black eyeliner crow man, I went on Richard and Judy, a daytime British TV show, a bit like, you know, Regis and whoever Regis is with these days. And, like, um, yeah, I think he may be dead, God rest his soul, but, you know, that daytime TV show. Anyway, like, when I went on there, I wore them flip-flops, and I remember Matt Morgan saying... 
What are you doing going on Richard and Judy in flip-flops? Hey, life's a beach, man. Yeah. I'm smoking a doobie, man. <laughs> I'm a Richard a and Judy, man. Why would you wear flip-flops on the TV? I don't know what I was thinking, actually. no one really wants to show their feet on TV, do they? People are reluctant to show the old Trotskys. Yeah. But I've got a very nice high arch. You really love your foot. nothing wrong with them now listen we've got to say some administrative things here firstly I want you to sign up to my mailing list because I do free zoom calls on there and you'll love them I'm doing one well I'm always doing one so this might be untethered from real time but what I want you to know is that you can if you sign up to if you go to russellbrand.com sign up to our mailing list every two weeks I do a free zoom call sometimes for about as many as 500 people or something like that we just chat I take questions it's a laugh it's like being at a very intimate radio show perhaps imagine Jonestown you know Jonestown the massacre well that's one aspect yes Jim but before <laughs> that they were having a very nice time they had a radio station uh, well it wasn't so much a radio that's station a terrible he did announcements from speakers now sadly Jim Jones was it seems in retrospect quite severely mentally ill and addicted to amphetamines but imagine being part of a lovely community where there are regular why are you shaking your head lovely regular announcements on speakers nailed to trees hello everybody are you relaxed it's coming up to meditation time oh god sounds like you're in an institution be awful wouldn't it what you want is freedom yeah total freedom to be who you are culturally sexually Every possible way. Be who you are, as long as you don't hurt other people. Then, you need to cooperate and help others. Some of the cultural models we've been handed don't work anymore. They were never in harmony with our nature, and they need to be realigned. Who's going to do that, though? Me. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet, Jen. Do you feel free, though? When? Now? Just in general. I do, actually. Do you feel curtailed and that you can't be yourself? I mostly feel like the things about me that I can't do, like take drugs, for example, is probably for the best for everybody that I don't. So I don't feel like... I do feel... What I do feel is that culture... Like I've I've resigned from mainstream culture in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't watch a lot of mainstream news. I sort of I watch football, for example, but like I only watch news to comment on it. I don't feel like it's conveying very positive information at all. I don't think the messaging is very good. What about you? What culture do you consume? I don't. Nothing? No. YouTube. You just watch YouTube, so do I really. Sometimes I watch shit TV, because it, num- it calms me down. What like? Why do you want to be numb? It's the worst things ever. Not what? numbed, but I feel like it's a... I can't get into films at the moment. Aren't you going to watch Nomadland? I can't. I need someone sitting next to me. Yeah, it's boring, isn't it, a film on your own? I like to stop the film, talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I have to have someone next to me. I wouldn't watch anything... I was on a canal boat the other day and I thought, bless you, I thought I wouldn't be able to, if I was on that canal boat on my own without my wife Laura, I thought I wouldn't be very happy at all. Like I just imagined it, she got up in the night to do something, the canal boat was making a noise. I thought, imagine this was just you on this canal boat, I thought, fucking hell, it would be awful. Oh, well I'm alone all the time. What's it like? It's okay most of the time. Do you get a, right, yeah. I've lived, Sometimes I've not... I'm like, oh. I haven't like, spoken oh, to anyone for a while. <laughs> Why don't you give me a little ring? I'll speak to you. I'll tell you what's what. What are you going to tell me? So buck your ideas up, I think. That'll be the, where I'd start. B- what ideas? <laughs> <laughs> buck them up, I'd say. Get them bucked. What, when you say, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because uh, some people are a bit hermetic. Uh, 
Yeah, like ninety percent of the time, I'm not talking to anyone or seeing anyone. Mm, that might be too much. That's a lot, isn't it? Why don't you get in touch with that therapist lady that, that t- treated you with crystals in America that you seem oh, to yeah, love Katie. so much? Oh yeah, Katie. We're friends on Instagram. Oh uh, yeah, Katie. We're friends. Beef, go, go. Why don't you get? She's yourself... in LA. Why don't you go on one of your little Norwich Trotskys? I found. Well, I had a fr- two ideas. Banter decanter. This is banter now. This is a banter decanter. When, why don't you just set me up with someone rich and famous with long hair? You're in that realm. Why are you? Keeping, I don't know anyone rich and famous with long hair. Them? I'm not gatekeeping. Well, they can have short hair then. Why do you want someone rich and famous? Don't be so shallow. Because then I don't need to worry about them not having money and having to look after them. And for nuisance, isn't it? I've already done that. (laughs) So you're looking for... They don't need to be famous. A rich man or woman with a very big prominent chin. (laughs) Not a big prominent chin, just a nice... Shall I reach out to Jay Leno? Just a handsome person. (laughs) Let's hold on. Let me get Jay Leno (laughs) on line one. You must know someone. Jay, is Jay's background Irish? It might be. I don't want Jay Leno. <laughs> don't be so far. All right. First, all right, all right. It starts with, they've got to be rich and famous. They don't and now we're famous. nitpicking about Jay Leno. They don't Jay need to Leno. be famous. They just need to be, have their thing, doing their thing. Jay Leno's got a thing. He's got big garages, hangers I full of cars. I don't want Jay Leno. What about Jon Snow? He's probably married. Jon Snow? From Game of Thrones. <laughs> he, he's married. Uh, uh, you like his chin? He's married. He's good, yeah. He's attractive. He's extremely good-looking movie star, Jay. Yeah. Let me What's make wrong a, with that one? Can I have an extremely good-looking movie star? What are we going to tell Jay? <laughs> I don't want Jay. You're not going to be giving Jay Leno the runaround. Why won't you give me a movie star? I don't own them. They're not... Like, <laughs> you, I've got, you're not, got a paddock you, of you movie stars out the back. You introduce me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not introducing you to married movie stars, no, Jen. No, s- single. Hold on, who's this texting? Oh, why, it's Jay Leno. No. Jay, you don't want... So we're, we're ruling... Is that, is that, can I just say, is that a hard no on uh, Leno? Yes. Jay Leno, no. All right, well, look, Jim, we will try and get you a man or a woman or someone to, that you... You don't even care how they identify. I mean, that's like man, the least woman, interesting bit about someone, isn't it? Ma- um, what, their gender? Well, if they're talking about it, I don't care... Right, you don't even care. Yeah, I don't care. You don't know, so going, I'm a man. Yeah, or someone. Yeah. I'm a trans. Yeah, yeah no. I'm a woman. No, it doesn't need to be. It's the least interesting thing about you. Right, what else do you do? Have you got a pet leopard? No, right. No. You're you're with Leno in the reject <laughs> bin then. Oh, yeah. I'm okay. not with Leno. No, yeah, Leno, been, you've been rejected at hand. Now, look, we're going to do Glenn Greenwald now. And I, like sometimes when we do these intros, you know what I think? I fucking hope the guest ain't listening. That's what I think. I <laughs> Glenn hope might we... listen. Glenn Greenwell won't part with this. You saw he's got a fierce intellect. He's yeah, but I a... feel like he's got a playful side. I think he's got a playful side, Jen. What do you want to do now? Get out of him? He's married. <laughs> I don't want to go out with him. Let's... We've had the banter. That was banter. Now it's comments. Roll Jingo Jingo. Now it's time for comments. <laughs> and also, what about your jingle? <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. yet. What's he doing? He's writing a darkness album in between the jingles. <laughs> Prioritise. Have you given him a free pass so we can listen to this whenever he wants? Get one off Charlie, give it He's to him. He's in Switzerland right now. Or is it not available in Switzerland? Here's some comments. Blinky248, where the hell is Steph Hoy? 
Blinky2481. Edward Snowden will go down in history as one of the great humans. I agree. Hajnal Katau. I want to hear Edward's take on the newly acknowledged UFO subject because initially he said he couldn't find anything existing on the matter in the database he hacked. Hmm. Does that mean there's another database he didn't know about? Yeah, good question, Hanal Katau. What do you think, Jen? Why is your palm out like that? <laughs> question. Good question. We want to know. Well, next time we speak to him, we'll make a note of that. UFOs. Mms and Tony, when are we making a movement group for people who have concerns about what's happening on a global scale so we can change the system, governments, bankers, tech companies? I want change and I want to start now. Now, I talked to you, didn't I, about my lovely community with speakers on trees and announcements. Now, what I think is you should, we should all start our own little c confederacy of communities. Start acquiring land. Start overthrowing institutions. Like, and let's just establish a set of values that you're into, isn't it? Have you got a set of values? Be nice. With the Be Nice crew. Listener, sh like, have we got any jingles that we've not done yet? Uh, listener shout out. Here comes a listener shout out. Listener shout out. Douglas Lefevre says, just wading into my third Under the Skin podcast, but thrilled that you are spending your time making these interviews as podcasts. I am a supporter. Thanks, Douglas Lefevre. What a great name, Douglas Lefevre. That sounds like a drag name. Maybe it's Lafever. Lafever. Douglas Lafever. Viva Lafever, I would say, if I was going out of him. <laughs> Regarding the Yuval Harari podcast, does man create AI to find out he is more than a corporeal being in the next age of mankind's ascension, or will we stay stuck in a materialistic, me mechanistic reality of our own creation? Perhaps not. Perhaps if we turn man's curiosity towards the unknown forces driving the ascension to higher consciousness challenge, maybe we can turn the rudder on the titanic mechanistic belief system well douglas these are all good points darling i think we are trying to explore the idea of super material consciousness but ai is really intelligence rather than consciousness isn't it? it's about the recognition of patterns it has to come via human consciousness the idea that some like in a sense the idea that consciousness comes from intelligence is itself a materialistic belief system that's a materialistic trope that all these systems of collaborating intelligence all these organs kidneys whatever all these guys they got together and a byproduct of this complexity was consciousness well old russ don't believe in that old russ believes consciousness first then all things come from it that there is an objective reality that a occasionally appears to us the burning bush the great reality the deep deep fact of our being love real love such as jenny may finn might search for on an app with a weekend perv oh yep that's right jen i went there i went there girlfriend i bloody well did now uh so mate yeah that's the sort of stuff that goes on in our podcast listen to the yuval Noah harari one why don't we get a bit of that we'll do some youtube clips on it is it on dear annabelle's list i'm sure it is now above the noise if you aren't meditating, meditate on Above the Noise. There's a new one every Wednesday. There's a few out now, isn't there, Jen? Two. Oh, there'll be three when Glenn comes. By the time you're listening to this, there'll be three meditations. Do them all back to back. Transcend yourself senseless. That's my advice to you. I've been meditating all the time lately. That's good. I think it's good, Jen. I don't, I don't know. know. You seem a bit spaced out today. Do I? I yeah. am. Yeah, that's what it seems like. I've actually beginning to... Yeah, I have to stay connected. I've got kittens and ki kids. You've got to stay connected to the kittens and kids. Yeah. They're here in the material world, at least partially. Hey, so if you're not on my mailing list, get on it. If you've not got gone to Audible and listened to Revelation, you should. I'm doing some interesting promo stuff for that soon. Revelation, 
my book where I talk about spiritual awakening as a flawed person. And is there any other kind of person? Also, my YouTube channel. We've got some great videos. This week we did ones on... What did we do this week? Snowden's on there. There would have been a, a clip from Greenwald on there. There's a clip from Greenwald, probably There's the Hunter Biden one. The monkey chips. Monkey chips, talking about monkeys with chips <laughs> in their mind. Psilocybin. You look, you look nice, that psilocybin. What? Did you say psilocybin or did you say simple Simon? <laughs> did you say I look nice? <laughs> Don't be ridiculous, Jenny. Don't be ridiculous. Why would anyone say such a thing? You can get in touch with me on social media. Twitter, I'm on that. Instagram, TikTok. Don't get enough views on that. We've got to work that out. But I'm sure there is a place for the elderly. And LinkedIn, <laughs> if you can imagine that. But why don't we now go live? Live? Well, not live. It's pre-recorded ages ago. Why don't we go back to then, when it was me and Glenn Greenwald? Do you know what? We're going to... I had a chat with Mark from Luminary. CEO Mark. How's it going, Mark? Respect to you and the Luminary crew talked about repackaging all of these stuff as modules i.e like you know sort of some of the more academic ones political ones lifestyle ones personal development ones spiritual meditative all the different types of under the skins there's an under the skin for everyone jen that's the fact he said if you're going to create these modules and sort of like sort of put them together more like as if it's a master class or a university of life type thing because we're going to have to look at those intros like you can't leave those intros in there and i said mark i couldn't agree more no. <laughs> <laughs> Only for the repackaged versions, Jen. Going forward, you and Do I. Do I have to wear glasses and say something smart at the beginning? Well, you're meant to have a degree, aren't you? I've got two, yes. Didn't you have? Have you got a PhD? No, because you scuppered that. What? I forbid it. You started touring and said I, had, I couldn't do the both, both at the same time. That's right, Jen. And I stand by that. Well done. You made the right choice. What is a PhD? I don't actually even know what it means. It's just a really long period of time of research on a very niche topic. Gosh, what does that even stand for? Per the post doctorate, right? Post honorary doctorate. Yeah. Oh, there's no point in that. No, no disrespect to the many academics listening. Well done. With all the PhD people we have on the podcast and all of the guests, <laughs> we're reliant on that. Let's have a listen to Glenn Greenwald. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Glenn Greenwald, thank you so much for joining me on Under the Skin. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you, Russell. Thank you for inviting me. The thing I wanted to ask, like my biggest question is, an outside observer such as myself might think that over the last five, ten years, I've watched you migrate from appearing in media that I would typically associate with liberalism, albeit neoliberalism, to media that seems more conservative. Specifically, you know, the Edward Snowden revelations break, you know, I'm English primarily through The Guardian from where I saw it unfold. And now I see you regularly on Fox. And in fact, we've done like videos where it's like, how can this even be on Fox? How can I sit and watch stuff on Fox where I agree with everything that's been said when five, ten years ago I was doing videos about Fox where it was just sort of satire and I was ridiculing it. What does this, What uh, to, to paraphrase Morrissey, has the world changed or have you changed? Well, you know, it's interesting if you go back to the Snowden reporting just quickly, since you alluded to that, I think in the UK it did very much break down on right versus left lines where there was kind of a lot of skepticism and even hostility toward the intelligence services in, in Britain, largely on the left. And the right was sort of this pro-national security state as it's always been. But in the United States, 
in part because the reporting was done under President Obama and exposed a lot of the spying programs that he himself had initiated and presided over. It generated a lot of hostility among liberals and a lot of support among conservatives because it seemed like it was showing that Obama himself had been spying on people en masse without warrants. But also it goes a little deeper than just that superficial partisan division, which is there is a longstanding, you know, kind of strain on the left to being skeptical of the CIA, the NSA, the security state in the United States. So that did generate a lot of support on the left. But also on the right, there's always been this kind of limited government, individual rights, sort of more libertarianist strain, especially before 9-11, that was really predominant. And I think it rejuvenated a lot of that, um, the idea that the government shouldn't be listening to our private conversations or tracking our emails or our browsing histories is something that appealed to that limited government pro-individual rights ideology on the right. So even that story itself, um, though typically these kind of leaks against the national security state were viewed as left wing, already were blurring the ideology. But I think to your to your deeper question about what has changed, I don't actually think I have that much. I mean, hopefully as adults, as we evolve, we all change in some ways. So I don't want to say I'm exactly the same as 15 years ago. That would be really dreary and depressing, right? But I think that the Trump era really transformed American politics in ways that it's still going to take some time to fully comprehend, in part because the arrival of Trump was such a disruptive element to traditional American politics in terms of his comportment, not really in terms of his policies, but in terms of his comportment, that it really became, it's not an exaggeration, a completely binary way of looking at the world. You were either pro-Trump or anti-Trump. And anybody who became anti-Trump became allies with of Democrats and liberals. And that included the CIA that hated Trump, that included large parts of the Pentagon, neocons, the classical Bush Cheney warmongers. And they started aligning with these people in the name of defeating Trump and absorbing a lot of their values. So, so much of the kind of ethos of the anti-Trump resistance, as they self-glorifyingly called themselves, became jingoistic, militaristic, pro-CIA, pro-Pentagon, obviously values that I've been combating and would never adopt. And then I think the most important part about the media shift was that the scandal that dominated the Trump era was Russiagate. The idea that he, that not just that he had colluded with the Kremlin, but that the Kremlin had actually contaminated American institutions, like this very far-right script that was used by McCarthy and J. Edgar Hoover in the 50s and the Cold War, that everybody was a, Krem a clandestine Kremlin agent, that Moscow was infiltrating the United States. It's a very far-right uh, kind of narrative that liberals embraced and adopted. And because I became one of the few skeptics on the left in media, I kind of got excluded from the media outlets that were relying on this and profiting off of it because they didn't want dissent. And the only place where you could go to dissent were either on far left shows, where I still appear often, just not the cable news ones, or Fox News. Um, and so I went to the places where I could be heard in order to express those, those, those views that I thought were important. Does that more broadly suggest that we are seeing a break post-Trump, albeit post-Trump, a kind of breakdown of those usual divisions. I've been reflecting a lot, Glenn, on how these values seem to be shifting in the way that you've just outlined. And it makes me think that some of these um, 
totemic issues are not inherently left or right in the way we understood them to be at all. And that perhaps these uh, taxonomies are themselves becoming redundant. And even that, there's potentially room for a new emergent political force that could create different alliances, you know, not just within the establishment, as you've just suggested, took place in order to oppose Trump, but to create a different type of populism. Is that something that you consider could occur? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, remember that when Trump ran for the Republican nomination in 2016, he ran against most Republican orthodoxies. He talked about the Iraq war as being not just a strategic mistake, but like this immoral atrocity. He ran against the idea that the Bush family had always been working for corporations. His motto was, I'm here to represent the forgotten man, meaning the working class and the middle class that the Democrats and the Republican establishments had abandoned. I'm not saying he believed in any of these things genuinely. I'm just saying in terms of the rhetoric and the branding that he used to win the nomination, it was very much a populist message that in a lot of ways resonated with large parts of the left, such as condemning global trade agreements as being, you know, anti-worker. Um, even immigration, you know, people forget Right now, it's kind of this sort of identity politics where if you're pro-immigration, it means you love all people. And if you're restrictive of immigration views, it means that um, you're probably racist or white nationalist because you don't want people of other races entering your country. You know, Russell, when I started writing about politics in 2005, open borders, as it was called, like the idea just let anybody in or have like, this was considered on the left to be a plot by multinational corporations like the Koch brothers, the Chamber of Commerce, to be a plot to flood the American market with surplus labor and therefore drive down wages. It was very anti-worker and union leaders like Cesar Chavez and people on the left like Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, always were very skeptical of immigration. So I think for a long time, these ideological divisions have been eroding. And I think the arrival of Trump and his very heterodox ideology that he ran on, you know, if I go now and write some article about imperialism against imperialism or militarism or corporatism or Silicon Valley monopoly power, you find enormous amounts of support for that on the right. Enormous amounts of support. 10 years ago, the word imperialism, you couldn't even say in right-wing circles. And now the idea that imperialism is this great evil or, you know, or corporatism is, is almost becoming conventional wisdom on, on the right. I think very much the idea is the Democratic Party is becoming the party of the affluent professional managerial class, affluent suburbanites, and then the power centers in Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and the Pentagon. And the Republican Party is again returning to becoming the party of the multiracial working class. And that is absolutely confusing, eroding, diluting, scrambling these ideological divisions, even though there's still a lot of people on both sides of that divide that don't want to admit that because those labels are so central to their self-perception. It seems that um, over the last 20, 30 years on what would be or could be regarded as the sort of centre-left um, parties, there has been a kind of abandonment of economic-led class politics in favour of a kind of culturally-led uh, ideological uh, politics. Once I spoke to the 
um, famous and, in, in my view, rather brilliant gay rights campaigner Peter Tatchell. And he said that he had he felt personally that when you're campaigning, campaigning for civil liberties, and of course this is not to diminish the phenomenal achievements in the area of civil liberties, the establishment has room to yield, he said. When you get near to economics, they are more robust. This is where real power is found. I wonder then if this um, sudden, this um, or incremental focus on what we would once have regarded as the left on sort of cultural issues is a as a deeper issue is kind of it implies that there has been an abandonment of ordinary working people regardless of how they identify or what their race is or their sexuality or whatever that working people are no longer represented perhaps anywhere because you know when it comes to the crunch what kind of representation are the republican or conservative party going to offer even if they can appeal to the more sort of jingoistic and nationalistic aspect of the presumed to apply to that class of voters yeah, I think it's the, for me, this is the critical point and the critical challenge that the left faces worldwide. I just actually wrote about this yesterday. You know, um, cultural issues, left-wing causes of social justice are not remotely a threat to economic or military power centers. In fact, they've co-opted these issues and it's become an important weapon for them. The first time I really noticed this was in 2015, the GCHQ, which is the British counterpart, of course, to the NSA, and is actually far more pernicious than the NSA. That was one of the things our Snowden reporting revealed is that a lot of times the NSA, not exactly world renowned for their restraint, wanted to do something that they felt like was over a legal or ethical line. They would farm it out to the British who are very eager to do it. The GCHQ pretty much will do anything. And yet in 2015, they decided it's really important that the world know that we adore gay people. In fact, we adore the cause of LGBT equality so much that we're going to take our creepy, futuristic, UFO-shaped headquarters and we're going to bathe it in the colors of the rainbow flag in honor of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and trans international day. And after they did that, the CIA started celebrating Black History Month and Women's Day and LGBT Day and talking about their LGBT employees and their diversity Corporations in the wake of the George Floyd killing in Minneapolis started waving the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter banner, putting it on their Instagram. Some of them still have the logos melded to their actual corporate logos, in part because it prettifies what they do, right? So, hey, if the GCHQ loves gay people that much, okay, maybe sometimes they go over the line a little bit with their spying and like. They do some unethical surveillance, but like deep down, they're obviously fundamentally good people working in a fundamentally decent institution and benevolent and benign. I mean, they're actually working inside the rainbow flag. How bad can they be? Same with the CIA. So, you know, corporations are now starting to see that as well. And I think that the more they co-opt that message, the more obvious it should become that this agenda is not remotely threatening to them at all. In fact, in a lot of ways, this last year or two of kind of further policing speech in the name of fighting racism and homophobia and transphobia and misogyny has empowered corporate managers. They now have new tools that they get to use to punish workers, to control how they speak, to constrain the workplace even further. And what is missing in all of this is exactly what you said, which is class struggle, 
Um, any attempt to unify the working class across racial, demographic, gender, sexual orientation lines, all these things are intended to just constantly divide up the working class based on these cultural wars that obviously fractures the population that could actually challenge these power centers, which is why they love it so much. And the other problem with it is, you know, there, it's hard to find. Like if you were to say, let's look at a, a left-wing leader who has succeeded politically in the democratic world. It's not that easy to find them. There's not that many of them. So one of them, and I think probably the most important one is Lula da Silva here in Brazil where I live, who, you know, grew up as seventh, the seventh of eight children. He was illiterate until the age of 10. Um, he became a factory worker. He lost a finger in a factory. He rose to prominence as a labor leader. He created the Workers' Party. And he became president of the sixth largest country in the world, which is Brazil, in 2002. And then 2006 was overwhelmingly reelected. And he left office with an 87% approval rating. 87% in a country where there's been massive inequality forever. Um, and the reason is, is because he devoted himself almost entirely to questions of income inequality, wealth inequality, and economic growth. He barely ever spoke about cultural issues. And, and as a result, the huge evangelical population in Brazil were left-wing. They loved Lula because they were poor, and they still are, and their lives got better under him materially. But now if you're, if you're Lula, and he's probably going to run again now that his political rights are restored in 2022 against Bolsonaro, he's not going to get away with that. Because the new generation on the left, say people under 40, obviously talking generally, don't want to talk about economic issues and class issues, at least not primarily. They want to know if he's in favor of abortion and trans women using women's bathrooms and, you know, talking about race from this very theoretical perspective that doesn't have a lot of impact in people's lives and isn't the way that they talk about it. And they're going to force him to say things for their support that may then end up alienating huge other parts of the population that are with him on economic and class issues, but get alienated on these others, which isn't to say that those issues are unimportant. But the I don't think anyone has quite figured out how you fuse them into a winning political project. Glenn, how has the cultural space come to be defined by these divisive ideas when, if viewed generally in total, nobody realistically benefits from the promotion i.e to your point they can the if gchq can drape their headquarters in the colors of that movement safely if the black lives matter protest can be corporatized and mobilized in banal and trivial ways it suggests that it's not having a meaningful impact although these are of course anyone would say they are important issues how has it become so defining? How has the cultural space become this uh, this beset, beleaguered with these um, minds, these lexical minds, these traps and tricks that prevent meaningful discourse from taking place? Who has established this pattern and to what end? I think it's a great question. And I think the answer is very clear once you start looking for it, which is it's really a discourse that emanates from elite precincts. Um, I, you know, I had this, this experience once where, look, you know, I'm, a, I'm self-aware of the fact that I work in media before that I was a lawyer. I grew up poor, but I went to college at a private university. I went to a very good law school. And ever since I've been, you know, living a life of 
um, from a class perspective of, of privilege. My husband is a congressman in Brazil, which further vests our family with, you know, influence and power. My platform is a journalist. So I'm connected all the time to elite discourse and I'm aware of that. And one time I went to, in like 2019, I went to South Florida where my mother was living and she she worked at this kind of like blue collar office. It was like a company that sold airplane parts. And she was really excited for me to meet her colleagues or coworkers. Um, and which she, you know, was an incredibly diverse office. There were like black immigrants from Jamaica, African-Americans, Latinos, Asians, Jews, every conceivable ethnicity. And she was always telling me how they would have these political arguments. And so she wanted me to meet them. They all knew me from, you know, TV and stuff. And so I walked in and and they just started kind of arguing with each other in a very like frivolous way. But I, re- I, I was like shocked because the things they were saying to each other, like in mockery and jest, just joking around with each other are things that if you went on Twitter and said, your career would be ruined in an instant. But to them, it's just, they, they know that it's not being done with malice. They're not like trying to apply these scrupulous rules to one another. They're relating to each other as human beings with differences that they're not uncomfortable and exploring. But also, you know, they sit together every day working and it creates this kind of culture and community and discourse that's so far removed from elite discourse. So, you know, if you look at, for example, like the New York Times now is starting to use gender neutral language for you can't say Latino or Latina anymore because it excludes uh, people who are non-binary because it's either male or female. It's a binary. It ex- it's, ex- it's exclusionary language. So they use Latinx. I don't even know how to pronounce that. I don't think anyone does. It's just Latin and then the X just to avoid masculinizing or feminizing the word. If you go and poll Latinos in the United States and ask if they like that word, like 3% have heard of it and like 2% like it, but it's obligatory in elite circles. If you ask people, you know, like defund the police has become this kind of like mantra of professional activists, of African-Americans and elite media institutions. If you go into black neighborhoods and ask them, do you want more policing or less policing? They'll say overwhelmingly they want more policing. Their complaint, obviously they don't like when there's police brutality, but their primary complaint is that there's so much crime in their neighborhoods and they feel like the police don't do anything to about it. People murder one another, rape one another. They don't solve the crimes. So the polling about how these issues are thought about among communities are so radically different than the opinions of the elites who purport to speak for them because this breach is like universes apart. So I think that a lot of it is just that these kind of elites, if you're, you know, a gay reporter who works for the New York Times, if you're an African-American who hosts an MSNBC show, you're still, you, you're extremely privileged and rich and have a lot of power and you're looking for ways to be marginalized. So you're constantly creating these theories about why you are and those theories benefit that elite class, but it doesn't do anything for the ordinary people who they pretend that they're representing and those ordinary people are not on board with it at all. And that's not me purporting to be their voice. It's just looking at polling data, looking at, you know, every indicia about this divide. Obviously, over your lifetime, um, you've said already, and most people I'm sure know that you're gay and you're married to um, a man, obviously. And like, I was thinking then that there was probably a time in your memory when your sexuality would have caused you to be to have adverse effects, face prejudice or whatever. Um, you know, and presumably you were alive when sort of AIDS was tearing through the gay community. So like, it's like there has been change, improvement, progression 
in with with civil liberties in that area have you noticed and have you changed your outlook like from a like a more a being more overt and radical about your sexuality and you know equal like we should have equal rights etc etc to recognizing oh there has been a change a transition in these areas there's no need for me to be as vocal is there anything like that from your personal experience yeah you know i mean when you know i came of age in you know, started realizing I was gay in the 1980s, which was the era of the Reagan administration, the advent of the moral majority. Um, homosexuality was never even discussed. You, it was like, you if you were a gay kid, you felt like you were the only person plagued with this disease, except when it came time to talk about this horrific, fatal virus, which was the AIDS epidemic. So it, the only time it got discussed was in connection with this horrific virus that people, you know, you saw gay people on the television, emaciated, dying alone with 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 sores all over their bodies. Um, so, of course, it not only created lots of psychological trauma growing up gay in that kind of a climate, but also lots of legal uh, obstacles as well for, you know, the idea that same sex couples would be fully uh, able to marry was inconceivable to me, not just through the 80s, but into the 90s and even the aughts. Um, and, you know, even as recently as 2005, when I met my husband, who's a Brazilian citizen, even then there was a law in place called the Defense of Marriage Act that was enacted by Bill Clinton um, that said that the federal government is prohibited from recognizing same-sex couples for any purposes of spousal rights that the federal government gives, which meant that if I had married a Brazilian woman, she would have been immediately entitled to a green card and ultimately citizenship, and we could have lived together in the United States. But because instead I fell in love with a Brazilian man, this law that was in place meant that my husband couldn't get residency rights or immigration rights in the United States, and we were kind of forced to live together in Brazil. Now, having to live in Rio de Janeiro happens not to be a tremendous tragedy for a person. It's something that worked out well for us, but still it was a serious problem that we couldn't even consider living in, in that country. And so now all of that has changed, right? It's 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 changed at least in the West. Um, here in Brazil, you know, Bolsonaro, who was elected in 2018, did run on a viciously anti-gay platform. Um, there's a lot of homophobia still. So we try and use our public platform. We have two children that we have we've adopted two sons um, to be very visible. We're conscious of that in that way, just to like send messages to young gay kids that they're hearing about what their lives are likely to be like, that it's not true. We feel an obligation to use our platform. But yes, in general, um, you know, the gay movement won. And I don't feel like it presents a lot of obstacles or problems in my life. Um, and it's not that it means that for other groups that still face similar problems, you know, I selfishly am indifferent to their plight. But it does give me a perspective about kind of the nature of progress that if you that I think like what I've really come to believe is that human beings are fundamentally good not all of them obviously they're sociopaths and psychopaths and like inveterate haters but in general I do think that human beings can be reached through persuasion through connection through spirituality through emotion and I'm very much a big believer in the idea that persuading people and engaging them in dialogue is a much more effective tactic than shaming them or hurling invective at them or declaring them to be evil. 
And I think that's probably the experience I had over those two decades or so in this cause is the biggest change in how I view things. Yes, and it seems pretty obvious from your work that what you consider to be a priority are like the economic issues, the collaboration between the corporate world and the state in establishing um, matrices of power that prevent transition, uh, a kind of new prioritism that prevents conversation. And to your uh, humanitarian point and your optimism there at the end, Glenn, like, uh, I, when you were speaking, I thought about like uh, sort of a, an anecdotal but presumably demonstrable fact within the British culture that at the beginning of uh, like Windrush and migration from like Jamaica and stuff, the the first wave of that immigration was characterized by sort of working class collaboration and uh, sort of cultural coalescence, the emergence of ska and different musical movements. And even skinheads initially were not deterred, like it was not a movement that was defined by anti-black or or racial hatred. It's like these ideas were secondary, they as if they emerged from somewhere else. Like the initial impulse was for people to get along. And in my own personal life, I've seen like my experience has been um it aligns with what you just described that i've seen white working class people in the 60s and 70s through discourse and conversation like oh yeah i used to be racist or prejudiced against this but now that i have different connections i've realized that those views are stupid and pointless and ultimately however you identify racially or sexually you have more in common with people in your economic class in your social class than people that are benefiting from stoking those kind of conflicts and um, differences I had two conversations recently Glenn on this podcast one with Vandana Shiva and one with your man Edward Snowden and um, in both of them they sort of both said and I don't think it was in response to a particular question that that in their own way said it's curious that at this time where we have the means of mass um, communication that we live as Snowden said we have this sort of zombification distraction and the stoking of conflict among people that could be natural collaborators and Vandana Shiva said that the British way of colonization has always been divide and rule and in this new tech wave of colonization that people of india are experiencing there is there are similar uh, there's the stoking of similar divisions and and culturally she said this is happening as well and i think it's interesting to our uh, an earlier point in our conversation that at this point where there is the opportunity for new types of collaboration new movements to emerge people are well, beyond quarreling hating one another on the basis of uh, uh, differences that could be resolved through conversation, unlike the differences that are, you know, that that are fortified by entrenched power. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting if you go back and look at the optimism and even the euphoria around the advent of the internet in, like, say, the mid nineteen nineties and into the early two thousands, in terms of why this innovation was potentially so transformative for humanity, one of the principal attributes that was heralded and celebrated was the, its connectivity, that you could connect to people across the planet who are completely different than you on the surface, but with whom you discover you have a lot in common. It could connect populations. It could allow for organizing. It had this t- potential to be this incredibly 
democratizing and liberalizing force of egalitarianism to unite people without having to have mediation of corporations or governments. And when I went to Hong Kong in 2013, and the first time I sat down with Edward Snowden, and I really wanted to understand what motivated a 29-year-old who was seemingly very stable and, and had a fulfilling life. He had a beautiful girlfriend who loved him and he, he loved. He had parents very supportive. He wasn't, you know, the kind of standard profile or typical profile of somebody who leaks because they're alienated or angry or uh, mentally imbalanced. And I wanted to know, like, why are you willing to risk your life at the age of 29? Go to decades, you know, go to prison for decades for this like abstract cause of privacy. And he said to me, my cause isn't privacy. My cause is a free internet. And the reason it's so important to me is because when I was 15 and 16 and 17 and living in this lower middle class home, his father was, you know, spent 30 years in the, the Coast Guard. Um, he had never traveled outside of the United States or even outside of the region in which he was raised. He talked about how the internet was the thing that let him explore himself in the world. You know, you could go on, you could be anonymous, you could don any identity, explore things. You could speak to somebody in South Korea or Peru or, you know, in the next town with whom you would other never wise have any kind of interaction. And he said that power that this technology affords humanity is, is worth fighting for in surveillance and coercion and the attempt to corporatize it can completely corrupt it and completely ruin it. And that was how the internet was talked about. And there is this, this paradox, which is, this, this this technology that dominates our lives, so much of our lives that we're currently using to speak with one another thousands and thousands of two oceans apart, thousands of miles away, was supposed to connect us all. And yet somehow it has separated and isolated us all more from one another than we ever have been before. And you see all the data about mental health, even before the COVID pandemic of, of anxiety disorders and depression and suicide and addiction and alcoholism all skyrocketing in the West because obviously people aren't deriving what they need psychologically and emotionally to have happy and fulfilled lives. There's no more religion. There's no more community that springs up around religion because of secularism. Nothing has replaced it spiritually. There's no community. We sit in these little offices or cubicles, all separated from one another. So that's a major part of why we're so susceptible to being fed hatred, I think, because so many people are angry and, and and unhappy and unfulfilled. And then you have two power centers in particular that I think are most incentivized to inflame these divisions and this polarization. One is, as we were talking about earlier, just kind of economic ruling centers of, of finance and wealth that want to keep people at each other's throats. So the more they're hating each other, the better off they are because they can't be challenged by a unified populace. But also, I really think that large media is the principal culprit, the villain, because in order to get people to watch them and their shows and care about what they're writing about, they need high levels of anger and adrenaline and emotion. They need villains constantly. They need threats. They need to put people in fear. Matt Taibbi, I don't know if you ever talked to him, but he wrote a book called Hate, Inc. in 2020, and on the cover of it is Sean Hannity of Fox News and Rachel Maddow of MSNBC. And a lot of people are like, how dare you compare them? But the reality is their economic model is exactly the same, which is they go on every night and they tell their flock that they should hate the other flock, the other tribe, 
more and more and more and more because of all the terrible things that they're doing, that these people are irredeemable, that they're an existential threat to their way of life. And, you know, we are tribal creatures. Just in terms of our DNA, we we needed to be to survive, right? We had to cling to our tribe. Being cast out of our tribe meant death not all that long ago, 5,000, 10,000 years ago. We're social animals. We're political animals. And these impulses are being exploited while we're physically separated from one another and then increasingly told to be emotionally and psychologically drowning in rage and fear towards huge numbers of other people. And it's just constantly feeding on itself this cycle of polarization that very much is, I think, being deliberately cultivated. I was astonished by some of the rhetoric against Trump. The initial wave of uh, sort of baffled intrigue around Trump's election was quickly superseded by the willingness of the um, media outlets that claim to be resourced by mere cool rationalism in their willingness to discard and condemn 75 million people as sort of lunatics and extremists. I was astonished to watch that unfold and increasingly found myself sort of, whilst I'm not a person that could ever be, um, you know, pro a guy like Trump, a sort of a capitalist and the kind of crazy stuff he's said and done is, you know, means that's not a pathway I'd ever really be into going down. I started to find him as a sort of a public figure kind of amusing because I found a word that you used earlier, his comportment like a kind of punkish, puckish, disruptor, trickster, gremlin in the machinery that I considered to be somewhat more nefarious, the um, banalizing, bleaching influence of of rootless, deracinated, ideologically corrupt former leftism used to create this sort of empty, traditionless, spiritless culture of gesture and emptiness. Um, what do you mean about when you're saying about his comportment as opposed to his policy being uh, what the source of uh, the trouble, as it were? Oh, so I'll tell you this... Uh document that maybe a lot of people never knew about or if they did they have forgotten but for me it's it's something i wrote about at the time and it stayed with me and forms a lot of how i view things um in 2010 there was a document produced by the cia that you it's not as conspiracy you can go online and read it it was reported at the time it's called a red cell memorandum. And what it was saying was that the, 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 a red cell memorandum is like when the CIA identifies some potential problem and they start kind of brainstorming how they're going to solve it. And the problem that this memo was identifying was that in 2008 and 2009, there was anti-war sentiment spreading throughout Western Europe, particularly as regards to the war in Afghanistan. That, and in fact, there was a government, I believe it was the Dutch government that fell that lost its election because of its participation in the war in Afghanistan and 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 the Dutch population had turned so against it that they voted this government out and they were polls were showing that you know people were tired of the war on terror generally and the war in Afghanistan in particular in France in Germany in Spain in all of the traditional American allies in NATO and the US was very worried very concerned that if this continued to metastasize this hardcore anti-war sentiment that all of their Western European allies were going to pull out of Afghanistan and leave them with the entire burden to fight the Taliban and to fight that war. And they were trying to figure out what is it that we can do to arrest and reverse this trend? Because it seems like a train that's just rolling. 
And what they concluded was that by far the best hope that they had was that Obama would win the 2008 election and he would then become the face of the war on terror and the war in Afghanistan. He had promised during the campaign that he wouldn't end the war, that he believed it actually should be fought more aggressively. He was critical of the Bush administration for getting distracted from the war in Afghanistan to go fight the war in Iraq. And they said, if we can get the face of the Iraq war no longer to be this kind of swaggering evangelical Texan that Western Europeans in Paris and Berlin, you know, in London uh, hate, but instead, you know, this like very cosmopolitan, sleek, Harvard-educated African-American who they swoon for and who they love. And if he's the one selling the war instead of Bush, that war will be looked at very differently and we can revert. And that's exactly what happened, Russell. Like that is exactly what happened. Those countries are in Afghanistan to this very day, precisely because Obama spoke to these Western Europeans about how important it was to stay in defense of the rights of women as though feminism is the reason the United States military fights, you know, wars. Um, and I think very much the kind of elite contempt for Trump was very much about the fact that his big sin was that he really was so illuminating about what the role of the United States is in the world and what the role of the government was. He kind of single-handedly and inadvertently deconstructed all of the iconography about the nobility and greatness of the United States, which is why the stench that he left in the White House, the vandalization that he did of its sacred halls, will never be whitewashed, no matter how many years elapse after he's gone, because once you see it, you can never unsee it. And he didn't really do that much differently. But, you know, the media talked about him like he was Hitler, and like literally like he was Hitler. And if you're talking about him like he's Hitler, then what does it say about the half of the country that supported Hitler. They, they're Nazis, they're evil people. And so this kind of discourse prevailed. Um, and it just, you know, it made everybody frightened. It made everybody scared. It made everybody angry and furious and hating one another. Um, and so I think the much bigger impact on the United States was not Trump, but the people who reacted to Trump and how they did it. Yes, I agree. And it's interesting that... Of course, we have to eventually resort to psychoanalysis, you know, hopefully not in a dreadfully cod way, because it's clear that both of these recent presidents were emblems, that one which was a concealing and attractive veil, and one that was a lurid and vivid representation of an unpleasant actuality. I spoke to an uh, like a the professor of black studies at Birmingham University, Kindy Andrews. He talks a lot about sort of race and cultural stuff. He's a pretty radical person, actually. He's sort of all about like extreme reparation to the point where the United States of America is dismantled, and like the same with the UK, of course. And like he would say things like that, Barack, like that Trump is a better president for Black America than Obama because you are confronted with the reality of what you are dealing with when you are dealing with Donald Trump. There is no concealment of the, these, the kind of agenda that you're citing. What then, um, there's a few things, gosh, it's quite a few things really that I'd want to ask you. And some of them are this, you sort of said already that, it's, that this is not something that can be spooled back once this revelation has been made. It's sort of, you know, that that's it, that's it, it's out there. What do you think, and I know this is something that you've been personally affected by with regard to your sort of role at The Intercept, and we, we subscribe, by the way, to your 
um, you, well, I read your stuff, you know, I subscribe to it. Thank um, you. <clears throat> no, yeah, thank you. Um, what, uh, firstly, I want to ask what you feel about uh, Biden, the reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop, what that sort of suggests way, about the way that um, media currently operates, how that's personally affected you as a sort of an ambitious and uh, uh, sort of pretty righteous journalist. And uh, then we'll move on to sort of solutions, if we may be so bold in the latter part of this interview. What do you, yeah, what, what do you, what do you feel about that? Why was that Hunter Biden thing important rather than just a sort of a salacious, sexy, mad story? Well, so first of all, the idea of a huge archive of documents that sheds light on what powerful people are doing, and it wasn't just what Hunter Biden was doing, because ultimately, if it were just that, who would care, right? He's just the son of a politician. There were a lot of documents that raised serious questions about whether Joe Biden, the person at the time running for president and likely to become the most powerful politician on earth, was intervening in Ukraine for the benefit of the company that was paying his son $50,000 a month for absolutely no reason other than to have influence with Joe Biden, which was Burisma, the energy company on which, for which in an industry in which Hunter Biden had zero experience or competence, as well as whether they were pursuing deals in China in which the negotiations were proposing that 10% or 15% of the profit stream from these deals they were pursuing as Joe Biden was getting ready to run for president would actually go to Joe Biden himself. There were a lot of documents that raised very real questions. And my initial interest was, it wasn't that there were smoking guns in the laptop. Obviously, I didn't care at all about documents relating to his struggles with addiction or, you know, sex, his sex life, which is all consenting adults. And to the extent he's talking about addiction, I have nothing but, you know, praise and support for him. I had no interest in that journalistically. Um, what I had interest in is, is was the material to, to allow us to investigate those questions. And one of the reasons it interests me is because that's been a lot of the journalism I've done. Edward Snowden gave me a massive document of, of a trove of huge numbers of documents that enabled me to do the reporting about mass surveillance by the NSA and its allies. Here in Brazil in 2019, you know, I was contacted by a source who gave me a huge archive of hacked conversations from top Brazilian officials, including Bolsonaro's justice minister, that allowed us to do a year's worth of reporting that freed former President Lula da Silva from, from prison. And that resulted in the attempt by the Bolsonaro government to imprison me for it. They criminally charged me for it and the Brazilian Supreme Court intervened and threw it out. So these, whenever there's a, an art, and obviously I've done a lot of work with and about WikiLeaks, which works with huge archives like that as well. So it's just journalistically, when you see something like that, you, you get drawn to it, right? You want to, it's like a treasure trove. It's what your job is to, to look at those documents and piece together and investigate to see what it is that they reveal about powerful people. I mean, if you don't want to do that as a journalist, like go do anything else. And what I was finding were two, was two things about this. One is there was no interest in finding out what those documents were because the media, for the most part, had convinced itself, like I was saying earlier, that Trump was Hitler. I'm not saying that metaphorically. I mean that literally, like, like that the facilities on the border that still were there, still are there and were there before Trump <laughs> were like Auschwitz, Auschwitz and that Trump was this kind of dictator figure and that it was the moral duty of everybody, including journalists, to refrain from anything that might hurt Biden because that would elect Trump, including doing reporting on this archive. So the idea became 
Nobody can do any reporting on this archive. They started maligning the archive. But the much bigger point was these, this group of ex-CIA officials issued a letter right when this archive was starting to be reported on by the New York Post, which is a kind of, you know, tabloid owned by the Murdoch family. But that also is the oldest newspaper in the United States. They have real reporters, even though they're like a tabloid, you know, like the Daily Mail and the Sun are tabloids, but sometimes they actually publish things that are true in the public interest, same thing. Um, and these ex-CIA officials who were obsessed with destroying Trump, they're the ones who manufactured the Russiagate scandal, issued a letter saying that this Hunter Biden laptop and the documents in it, in their judgment, while admitting they had no evidence for it, but in their judgment of years of studying the Kremlin and develop, knowing how the Kremlin works, like in their deepest gut, that they believe that it's Russian disinformation. Russian disinformation, which says two things. Number one, this came from the Russians. So this is the Russians, again, interfering in our election. And then number two, it's, it's, the information is false. It's disinformation. The documents are forged. Now, I knew they weren't forged. I knew they were genuine because I know what happens if you go to report a large archive on someone using fake documents. They jump up and they say, those emails aren't mine. I didn't write those emails. These are forgeries. And the Bidens never said any of that because they couldn't because they were true. And it was obvious they were true. There were people participating in the email change and the business deals who were saying publicly on the record, yes, I did get this email. I can compare it to my the email that I still have on my computer and show you word for word that it's genuine. So all of the indicia of authenticity were there that you'd look for as a journalist that I've relied, that I've staked my entire reputation on by publishing archives based on that indicia of authenticity. When I got the Snowden archive, I had to make sure it was authentic. I authenticated the one in Brazil using those same methods. So media outlets were saying, not only were they saying we won't report on it, but much worse, even the ones that like The Intercept that I fucking co-founded <laughs> to be adversarial to the CIA and the intelligence community adopted the view of the CIA officials that this came from Russia and it was disinformation, even though there was, I mean, the whole point was you be, you're supposed to be skeptical of claims from the CIA because they're trained liars and they do nothing but disseminate disinformation. So when they say something, even if they say it's sunny outside, you go out and check. And even if you see the sun, you like still have doubts that maybe it's a fake sun given everything they've done. But in this case, they just imbibed it mindlessly. And so they, not only did they not report it, but they prevented me from, you know, I, I, I was wanting to analyze what these documents showed. I got prevented by my own media outlet, the thing that I founded at the height of the Snowden story from doing it. But the worst thing and the most dangerous thing, Russell, was that, and this is the thing that I think is the most important thing from all of this, is that Twitter and Facebook, which are information monopolies, they're not just private companies like any other. Facebook, you know, currently has 2 billion of the world's 8 billion people using it to communicate. It's a 25% of the planet is on Facebook. Much of the ones who aren't are because they don't have internet access. And Twitter is the place where anyone who works in politics and media spends all their day. So they're incredibly powerful companies. Twitter banned any mention of this story. If you wanted to link to the reporting from the New York Post and then ultimately Fox News and other right-wing outlets that were doing the reporting, the link wouldn't work. You would put the link and they would say, this link is banned, not just for publicly tweeting, but even if you wanted to have a private conversation using the chat function on Twitter, you couldn't link to the, it was just censored. It was banned like you were in China. And it was an art. And then Facebook announced that they were algorithmically suppressing 
the spread of the story. So you could post it, but nobody would see it. They had like tinkered with the algorithm. This is like three weeks before the election. Silicon Valley monopolies that were supporting one of the candidates were censoring reporting, authentic reporting about the candidate that they were supporting based on lies from the CIA. That for me was a huge mask off moment. So when you asked me about the Hunter Biden story, yes, I think the documents are important. Yes, I think that journalists should have investigated. Yes, I think it was a huge professional disgrace that they didn't. I obviously quit The Intercept and protest over their efforts to censor me at my own outlet. But the much more pernicious and enduring event as part of that was the use of Silicon Valley power in unison to simply prevent how many millions of Americans from hearing about documents that they absolutely should have known about before going into the voting booth. I really would have liked to have been present for your conversations at The Intercept when that was happening. If this is how you feel about it... (laughs) Four months later, the level of outrage, I would like to have been there when you go, you fucking won! <laughs> it took you somewhere that, I, I, I can see that. I can see that it really spurred you in a place that you don't like to be hit. Right there. Just to remind you of your details, you was one of the founders of that intercept. That didn't matter. They were able to censor you. You, of all people, after everything you've done. I reckon I could go you that, to the that, point that of cardiac was, that arrest. That shit was built on my name and the whole point of it was... <laughs> Unlike other media outlets, we're going to give journalists editorial freedom. I always had editorial freedom in my career. But the idea was we're going to give everybody the same freedom as I had. It always worked until like three weeks before the election. And then suddenly it was like, no, we're not going to allow you to decide to publish what you want. But what was their side of the conversation? How did they say that? How did they, given that I imagine as a you know a former lawyer and as the perhaps the world's most renowned uh a journalist in this field, how did they counter your arguments? What did they say? No, how did they back that up? Well, what they said was, you can write about the archive as long as you take out the parts about Joe Biden. So like, they were allowing me to do a media critique, but not analyze the contents themselves. And their arguments for that were twofold. Number one, that they believed that this was Russian disinformation because the CIA had said so. Not even the CIA, like ex-agents of the CIA. They were saying, we think the provenance of these materials um, is very much in doubt. And I would say, how is it in doubt? It's not in doubt for me. I'm willing to put my name on it. I'm willing to stake my reputation to, to write about them as authentic. And I have a lot of experience in this. And if, you know what? If you think they're not authentic, what you should do is publish my article and then publish one from someone else countering what I've said. That's like a rational adult thing to do, right? Is like to have a discussion and debate. So that was part of it was they had doubts about the authenticity, but their other argument was even more corrupt, which was like, even if it's true that Joe Biden was doing some shady deals in the in Ukraine and China, the corruption of Trump is so much greater that it's journalistically irresponsible to leave the impression that they're both ethically compromised in similar ways. The reality of what was going on, Russell, was that in 2016, we did a lot of reporting on the archive published by WikiLeaks and the emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC that showed a lot of corruption. We did a lot of reporting on that. And when Trump shocked everybody by winning, there was this huge crisis, psychological crisis in The Intercept, like, oh my God, what have we done? 
we shouldn't have done our jobs as journalists. Like we might probably contribute it. And they had to go and hear and all of their little liberal circles in Brooklyn, people blaming them for having helped Trump win by having reported negatively on Hillary Clinton. They were traumatized. It was like post-traumatic stress disorder. Under no circumstances were they going to go through that again by doing their jobs again in a way that might have helped Trump win one more time. This is deeply revelatory about what underwrites democracy and freedom of speech. And it sort of clearly shows you that that they have a clearly prescribed uh, prognosis for how democracy should be played out. And if democracy is not played out that way, then now it is okay to censor on Twitter. Now it is okay to water the algorithm. Now it is okay to not report on Hunter Biden, because I said, or Joe Biden, as you characterise it. And yeah, I would take your word. So like, so it seems to me that... You know, like see that bit you touched on there, like they were saying, oh, it's they're sort of saying people aren't sensitive enough or intelligent enough to deduce whether or not in the corruption league table Trump is worse than Biden, and we don't want to create this sort of idea that they're both comparable or both equally corrupt, or even that Biden is more corrupt. Therefore, let's withdraw that piece of information so that it can't even be viewed. So I suppose what that sort of shows us, and and why it seems worse from the left is because the left is purporting. So it, like that, I suppose, shows the hollowness of the gestures, of the attitudes, of the sort of whole ideology, that this ideology is OK as long as it's never opposed. It's OK as long as you never have to suffer or sacrifice. It makes me angry. Um, like, but I wonder, mate, um, also whether or not you feel that. The, the 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 distinction between Biden and Trump is not that significant. That the the the, the, the power is quite um, immobile when it comes to it and the sort of the ability to make meaningful decisions in those in those uh, roles is quite limited there's a few things I will just want to drop and so that I get to say in front of you one was I watched them um, only on the internet um, Bannon talking to the Oxford Union and he'd spoken for 20 minutes before he said anything that I even remotely disagreed with he didn't say anything about immigration or sex or gender or race he just said in 2008 this crash happened these people went and saw Obama Obama signed these documents you ain't ever getting a mortgage to the, to the English like audience right I saw that. That affected me. From talking to people around the Democratic Party, it became clear that the uh, DMP would rather sacrifice a term to Trump than have Bernie stand and that they made, they manoeuvred. So then what is that party about? What are their intentions? And therefore, who does represent ordinary working Americans? And therefore, they are right to vote for Donald Trump. They're right. That's the thing that I suppose viscerally affects me for all the condemnation of, you know, uh, nationalistic, patriotic, white or whatever colour working people in these anglophonic nations. The fact is, is that they don't have an alternative. The alternative has been denied to them. These parties that were set up in order to represent their interests have become hollowed out and ultimately meaningless meaningless by the barometer that you earlier outlined that if this you know gchq and etc can use these tropes these images these symbols then they they are not transformative one of the i think most interesting facts about the american polity that almost never gets discussed is the non-voter, the percentage of Americans who decide that voting is not worthwhile. So if you 
are a journalist or you're an activist and you say, look, I don't really think the differences between Republicans and Democrats are sufficiently compelling to make it even worthwhile to support one of them. I'm going to support a third party or I'm going to abstain. The instant accusation is that that's a, a that's a viewpoint that comes from privilege, that because you're so privileged, you're wealthy, you're powerful, you're shielded from bigotry. It's you have the luxury to do that, but that people who are poor, people who are discriminated against, people who are marginalized don't have that privilege. The reality is the exact opposite. If you look at the profile of the non-voter, they're overwhelmingly and disproportionately poor and people of color. They're deciding, now, you know, probably in some cases there are some obstacles that have been put in their way to vote, but it's not that hard to vote, even to, to register to vote and then to go vote. Um, the lines are too long, they should be shorter, but people who want to go vote can vote. They're choosing not to vote. And there's a lot of polling data that polls non-voters and says, why don't you vote? They don't say the lines are too long or all these obstacles. They say, because I don't give a fuck. I don't think it matters. I don't, I don't think it, I don't care. It doesn't affect my life. Do you know there, they, they, in, in 2016, after the shock of uh, Trump's victory, one of the states Trump won that Hillary was expected to win was Wisconsin. So the New York Times actually published a really good article. They went to Milwaukee, which is a heavily African-American city that typically votes overwhelmingly Democrat. And they analyzed that the reason Hillary lost Wisconsin was because so many black voters who had voted in previous elections for Obama stayed at home. And they went and they asked them, knowing now that Trump won, in part because you decided to stay at home, do you regret that choice? And to a person, they all said, absolutely not. I don't regret it in the slightest. In fact, I only voted for Obama kind of out of like racial obligation. He didn't do shit for our lives. And I sure as hell wasn't going to go do that for Hillary. This is like the unspoken fact that just is disappeared because it's such a revealing fact about the two parties. If you only interview and speak to and hear from the people who believe that there are these really radical differences between the parties, that there it's a battle between good and evil, if you only hear from them, it'll seem like that's true because you've just excluded everybody else, millions and millions of people, not a tiny fringe, millions and millions of people who think exactly the opposite. Ultimately, yeah, there are differences between the parties. I mean, there's no, you can't deny that there are differences. I mean, the they, they have differences on cultural debates. Um, and the like. But on the questions of foreign policy, militarism, capitalism, the working class, there are really no differences at all. They're funded by exactly the same power centers. And, you know, it, it's become this kind of uh, stigmatized taboo view to talk about the existence of a deep state in the United States, even though there so obviously is one. If you just pick up any book of the Cold War, you know, Devil's Chessboard or the Jakarta Method. There's several really good ones. That whole thing was created on purpose to be a secret power center that exercised dominion and hegemony regardless of the outcome of elections. You can have a Republican, you can have a Democrat, and the CIA gets what they want, the Pentagon gets what they want, the Wall Street gets what it, it wants, and now increasingly Silicon Valley get, gets what it wants. 
So what media outlets will do is focus on the small areas where there are differences, culture war differences, they'll exaggerate other differences to make it seem like you have this, like democracy is this incredibly messy, you know, free for all where there's all kinds of divergent views and there's tons of freedom everywhere in the discourse. And they, they, they achieve that by just eliminating and never talking about the incredibly consequential and ample policies where both parties agree, and by excluding from the discourse people who just say, I don't think there are any differences and therefore I don't participate. Yeah, it's treated like a kind of apostasy. Like, you know, that that's where the real alliance is. It's like you will participate in this illusion if you step outside of it. You know, like speaking to you and your great litany of death threats that you can slap on the table. I will report my own meager encounter with such matters. The only time other than sort of trivial celebrity related stuff that I've felt the sort of heat of uh, the establishment, as it were, is when I sort of publicly a few years ago said, I don't think there's any point in voting. No one I know votes. It's stupid. It's pointless. I grew up just thinking it was pointless. When I said that, it was like, <laughs> they rained down on me. They rained down on me. And said, Stop saying that. Say something different. Say something else. Because, yeah, it does. The other, the implication of that, may I offer, Glenn, is that there must be this seeded, uh, unexplored territory where a new political force, were it legitimate, could emerge, you know, nationally, globally, however, if that was, well, focused upon, predicated upon the rights of ordinary people. What? Why is that not happening? Why has that not happened? Why did Saritza Podemos, the sort of left-wing, somewhat democratic movements fail. And I, I sort of somewhat know that Syriza got sort of sucked into the system by the EU and Podemos became centralised and normalised. But why why is it so hard, given that there's so much territory ceded, given that like so there's, why, there's so much available space, why is there not, uh, why are there not more voices that are saying, hey, this is us, we're against big tech, we're against uh, inequality, well, this is our this is our movement. This is our aims. These are the policies we'd implement. Why 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 are these you know assassinatable figures not emerging? You know, I think we don't spend enough time thinking about the nature of power. So we we people we talk about power a lot, right? Like people like to say it's important to speak truth to power. It's important to confront power centers, to talk about how, but we don't really talk about what power means. So I've spent time thinking about that because not just my experience when I did the NSA reporting and then worked with WikiLeaks, but also here in Brazil, where my life was you know, upended for a year and a half, where we didn't leave the house without an armored vehicle and armed guards because of our challenge to the Bolsonaro movement. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what does it mean when you say like you're going to go confront power? And to me, what it means, you can create different definitions, but at the core, what it means to say that someone is powerful is that they have the capability to reward anyone who serves their interest, to bestow on them benefits and advantages and gifts and assets, and conversely, to harm or punish or destroy anyone who impedes their interests. Ultimately, that's what power means. So if you go and you impede, genuinely impede, I don't mean like symbolically or through pretend gesturing, but like actually impede people who wield power, they're going to use that power to try and destroy you. So look at what happened in your country, you know, with Jeremy Corbyn, which I think 
you know, his ascension to the leadership of the Labour Party in a lot of ways was as cataclysmic as Trump's ascension to the White House. Someone like Jeremy Corbyn was never supposed to be the leader of the storied Labour Party with a chance to go be prime minister of the United Kingdom, of, of Great Britain. That was not supposed to happen. And just like you alluded to the fact that in the United States, people would rather have one with one have lost to Trump than one with Sanders. Obviously, we know for sure now it's true. It was obvious all along, but now there are documents proving it, that the centrist, corporatist wing of the Labor Party obviously preferred to lose to Boris Johnson and win with Jeremy Corbyn. They did everything they could to sabotage the chances of the Labor Party. And they didn't just undermine him politically. They completely destroyed his character and reputation. I mean, it is assumed pretty much around the world, except in pockets of the left, that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite, one of the worst labels that you can put on anybody. When Bernie Sanders was challenging the, the actual status quo in 2016, he really wasn't doing it in 2020, but he was in 2016. They turned all of his followers overnight into this like racist, proto-fascist, misogynistic movement. Now, very similar to what they said about Corbyn supporters. They harass and abuse female reporters. They hate women. They're uniquely abusive. Same thing was done to the... So there's all kinds of tactics that power centers use, either first to co-opt you, right? So I'll just give you this quick example. This is always very clarifying for me. In Brazil, from 1964 to 1985, Brazil was ruled by a very savage, brutal, vicious military dictatorship, of which Jair Bolsonaro was a part. He was a young army captain in it. And they did all the things dictatorships do. They killed dissidents. They imprisoned journalists. They exiled artists. All of that, they revoked every civic right and civic liberty possible. But before that, Brazil was a burgeoning democracy. It was steadfastly neutral between Moscow and Washington in the Cold War. It didn't want to get drawn in. And it was growing as a democracy. It was like a model for the region. And they elected a center-left government in 1963 that really was center-left, not left. It was, they, weren't a com they weren't communists, they weren't socialists, they were doing moderate reforms to the economy just to kind of assuage some income inequality, like rent control and like nationalizing a few industries that were had previously belonged to the public, but nothing revolutionary. But that was way too much for Washington. So under the Kennedy administration and then the Johnson administration, they kept going and visiting Brazil and telling that president, you need to stop this. You need to do market reforms that allow international capital to buy these assets. You're going way too far. So they first tried to co-opt him, saying, we'll let you stay in power as long as you move over and we get comfortable with you. You give up this kind of extremist ideology. You can keep the leftist rhetoric, but like open up the markets and keep everything, you know, the way it was. Stop putting limits on what landowners can charge for rent, stop nationalizing industries so that your resources go to serve the Brazilian people instead of letting our corporations buy it and exploit it for the benefit of us. And when he said no over and over and over, in 1964, they engineered a coup and they overthrew that government, installed the military regime that destroyed Brazil for the next 21 years. That's what power does. That's what power does. So it shouldn't be a surprise that when there are movements that arise that are genuinely threatening to the neoliberal order, they're going to do everything possible to obliterate them.
And they use propaganda, they use media outlets, and they use every conceivable dirty trick to do it. And I think that, I, I, I do think the left has challenges we talked about before, about how to communicate um, its program and, 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 and try and reconcile this kind of, you know, cultural agenda with economic ones. So I don't want to absolve the left um, completely, but I also think that um, there are real power centers and they know how to use power. I see. I mean, just in those examples with inter international politics and the actions of uh, secret service agencies, you can see. And also, yeah, like with the and, and in a more, what do I want to say, a more a bureaucratic, less terrifying sense through propaganda. Yes. I mean, I would appreciate if you turn that light on. I'm very well, I'm aware yeah, of yeah. chaos happening at the background of the Greenwald household. I've heard dogs. I've heard a weird alarm. Always. I know you've got too many dogs. This is clear. Um, like, um, but like, so even if there are sort of somewhat, because, you know, it's been said of Corbyn's agenda within the Labour Party that sort of 50 years ago, that would have been considered pretty moderate. It was what the sort of, you know, Attlee government were elected on. And it's not like it weren't a super radical thing. Except in the you know the, this this current context, I see. So, any genuinely opposing voice will be quashed. So, does that mean even like a voice like yours? Do you recognise there are limitations that you're offer operating within? Are there things that you wouldn't report? Are there things that you wouldn't do? Are there territories that you wouldn't want to go near for the fear of your own safety and the safety of your family? I wouldn't say that there are places I wouldn't go, but. Certainly, when I do go to those places, I try and exercise huge amounts of caution. And because I'm aware that of what people are capable of doing. Um, you know, here in Brazil, for example, um, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with the reporting that we did on on, on the Bolsonaro government, but, you know, it, 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 it was the main story in Brazil from 2019 to 2020. I kind of became public enemy number one of the Bolsonaro movement. Um, as I said, in early 2020, they actually charged me criminally with, I think, 120 felonies. Um, and there was a lot of security threats along the way as we were navigating the reporting. And one of the reasons why I took it so seriously was because in 2018, uh, there was this woman, her name was Marielle Franco. She was this black LGBT woman who grew up in the slums of Rio de Janeiro. She ran for Rio de Janeiro City Council in 2016, the same year that my husband ran for Rio de Janeiro City Council, and they both won together. And they had very similar trajectories. My husband also comes from a favela, is LGBT, is black. It was kind of like a huge story, but she got the huge vote total. He like barely won. He was new to the, the political scene, but she became this huge political force because she had been working for a long time in, 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 in politics and had a lot of support and connections from these communities. And she became such a big icon, like such a kind of symbol of the potential for people who had been voiceless to start exercising power. In 2018, my husband sat next to her every day in the Rio de Janeiro City Council. She became one of our closest friends. And then in 2018, in March, she was at an event called, um, you know, Black Voices Moving Societal Structures, left the event around 9.15 at night, was being driven home, um, by her driver and two cars pulled up alongside of her car, rolled down the window and pumped 15 bullets into her car, four of which entered her skull and killed her immediately. 
three of which entered the back of her driver and killed him immediately. So when you have those kinds of very close brushes with death, or in the case of Julian Assange, who has been detained in an embassy for eight years and now in Belmarsh prison for two, for doing something that I've done many times, which is publish classified documents against the wishes of various governments, and you're that close to it as well, you have to take those very seriously. But at the same time, you know, uh, when I got that call in, in 2019 from the source about this huge Brazil archive, and I knew it was going to upend our life, and my husband kind of jokingly said to me, God, can't people just find someone else to give an archive like this to you? Like, why does it always have to be you? We all, you know, it was, it was half joking, but we both knew that there was no possibility that we weren't going to take it. Because you have to decide, like, what is your purpose in the world? What is it that you want to do in the world? And if there's any moment when I decide I'm too scared to do something that I believe I'm created to do, that I have the capability to do, that I have the resources and the platform to do, you know, I'll spend the rest of my life ashamed of that choice. And it'll change how I think about myself and my place and my role in the world. So I think you have to always find that balance, though, between not being reckless and proving your brave and courageous for the sake of it. Like I think Julian has done a couple of times and for that reason ended up where he ended up. I don't want to blame him, but just saying, I think he got a little hubristic at times and therefore thinking he was immune. Like I said, you have to always realize what power is. And if you want to challenge power, you have to be very cognizant of what they'll do, not just to you, but to anyone to preserve and protect their prerogatives. Power is the ability to reward people who advance your interests, punish people that interrupt, disrupt, challenge your interests. That's that's your definition, and that's what to be, that's what to be aware of. Whether it's yeah, Belmarsh or Fifteen Bullets, there's there are actions that can be taken. Would you say there are? Well, and, and, and just to just to add quickly to that point, which is you have to be careful of the converse too, right? Like after the Snowden reporting. And the danger was done. We won the Pulitzer. You know, the film made about it won an Oscar. I was up on the Oscar stage. I was, you know, being invited into all the glorious halls of elite power and offered all kinds of rewards as long as I was willing to be compliant. Those temptations are also powerful, just like the fears are that they can instill. So are those rewards. Like, hey, why don't you get rid of the combativeness and like the anger and the kind of like disruptive behavior. And you can have like these shows, you can like speak in these grand halls for $100,000 a night, like Fareed Zakaria does. And you know, all the people who play ball, that's also very powerful. And just like you have to avoid the, be mindful of the risk, you also have to be mindful of those temptations as well that they use to great effect. You're right that it, they can absorb you back, even having done something as groundbreaking as Snowden or what you've done there in Brazil. There's they to a point will offer you a way back. There's the treasures and there is the the the, pun, the punitive component. I see. And like, yeah, did you feel that you were drawn into that for a while? Did it get you? There were just a couple of times when I was in places that I never thought I would be or wanted to be. I remember once I went to this debate called the Monk Debate in Toronto. It's just like aristocratic Canada. 
and they pay you an obscene sum to come and like debate. And it's supposed to be a very like civil, gentlemanly debate. And I was debating General Michael Hayden, who ran the CIA and the NSA under George Bush and Dick Cheney after 9-11. And you're supposed to go to a cocktail party beforehand and take pictures and have chats. And, you know, I regard him as like a war criminal. I think he should be in a dungeon in The Hague. (laughs) And when I found myself instead in this like plush room, you know, with little champagne glasses or whatever, um, you know, I realized... This is not the path I want to take, no matter what the rewards are. Yeah, it's amazing that that is one of the options, the sort of parlor version that it can be introduced into this sort of trivial presentation. I was once on a billionaire's island was my version of that. And then like I sort of felt it sort of creeping over me like, oh, shit, why am I on a play uh, why am i with a tax exile discussing how we could improve the nhs when the answer seems quite obvious <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, man. yeah exactly yeah thank you glenn for your time and for your expertise and your diligence it's amazing to have the opportunity to speak with you for so long and to learn from you to like having speaking to you so close to having spoken to edward i get, i mean i must say i get fucking terrified sometimes sometimes when people talk about power i f- like i even rem- vicariously feel it i feel like oh shit man that's a real that's a real thing that's a real thing it's not you know because i operate in this space where like the videos i do now oh, davos this these collaboration this is corrupt you know i'll put out some of this conversation you know and like but you know, you know, like how it the culture can accommodate, it can accommodate impotent dissent, commodified dissent, online dissent. But you know, but like when I hear, I hear what's on the other side of that line when you know talking to you and to Edward, who I heard you on Rogan say is like the finest person you know. I reported that back to him in case he didn't hear that that thing. And he, it was a pretty lovely conversation, but yeah, I he, extend he, my he question. hears everything. He hears more than the NSA. No, but you know, I think it's I think it's a uh, Interesting in your case, and I think one of the reasons why you do generate a lot of uh, resentment in what you do is because you weren't supposed to be doing what you were doing, right? Like you had the all the advantages of cultural celebrity and opportunity and wealth that it affords. You're not supposed to be a dissident to... Uh, the prevailing status quo, you're supposed to be content with it, given everything it believes it has given to you and done for you. And I think when people in your position say, you know what, despite the ease of the path that I have been offered and could take, I'm instead going to step off of it and take a more difficult one. I think you become even more threatening than people who they think have a right to be angry. Like they think they... Should they they think that the bribery and and kind of you know buying off of you that they did entitles them to your compliance and your contentedness and not your radical denunciation and I think that produces a lot of resentment. Oh, thank you, thank you for that justification of the resentment. I thought uh, there might be other reasons why people were irritated. It's glad to be absolved of that temporary self doubt. I mean, like I I um. 
You know, I was thinking then that sort of for me, the only sort of salve is sort of spirituality. And but regardless of how you approach that uh, rather vague, nebulous term, it must be the same for you too, i.e. some invisible set of values that are more important to you than the, you know, the little champagne glasses and being the toast of the town and the awards and whatnot. Right. It's There must be something that's yeah, more valued, no, well, however yeah, you define yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I... When 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 I, you know, right around the Snowden reporting, when, you know, I started having a kind of international profile and a big platform, and with that comes lots of financial opportunities. Um, I was able to write books and 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 you know have a lot of opportunities professionally, all the things I always wanted. I kind of looked at my life and I was, you know, sort of said, you know, I had a list of things that when I was twenty five or. 27, I thought that as long as I got all those things on the list, that that would be the happy life. That would be the fulfilling, happy life. And I looked around, I was like, I have every, I have all of them. I have every one. I checked them all off. And yet it wasn't really bringing happiness at all. It wasn't bringing fulfillment at all. There was obviously a lot of, you know, deprivation. And I didn't really understand where was that deprivation coming from. And then I started mostly with the help of people who were wiser than me about these things, understanding that as we were kind of talking about before, there are certain needs that human beings have that extend way beyond the material, that just that our brains are constructed to require in order for to be happy. And one of them is spirituality, whatever that might mean for you. And if you don't have religion, you need to find another way that you get it. And it can be, you know, People use meditation, they use Buddhism, um, all things I've used. Um, but I think it ultimately more means just finding a purpose greater than yourself, a way to connect to energies greater than you. Um, I never wanted to be a father. My husband did. I kind of agreed as a concession, the kind of concession that you make in order to keep marriages ongoing. Um, and yet, you know, this connection I have with my two children is probably the most valuable thing I have in my life, which is something I've never thought I would hear myself saying. Um, but also, you know, just the ability to figure out what kind of person you want to be in a way that extends far beyond the work that you do, the money that you make, the fame that you pursue. Um, if you don't have that path that's open to you and that you're willing to traverse, at least for me, happiness and fulfillment becomes impossible no matter how much money and fame and success you have it will never fill that hole because that doesn't fit there it's not it doesn't translate into that thank you glenn that's a um uh, amazing i'm glad we got to sort of touch on so such a broad range of topics didn't even get to talk about whether or not the pandemic's being used to impose different types of power and increase those some of these power bases that we've touched upon but we've been talking for a little while now i need a wee i'm supposed to go to frankly a 12-step drug and alcohol support program that i attend for my own sanity but i'll tell you plainly that i would love to if i ever i'd love to visit you one day if that's possible can i it's not, not yeah not yeah now i end podcasts the, the vaccination <laughs> promise land is i just you've invited yourself to visit me and i'll invite myself back on your show i'm happy to come back on any time and um, I don't know if you're vaccinated yet. I will be shortly and uh, we can start traveling again. And I would love that. 
Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I would too. Thank you, Glenn. Under the skin with Glenn Greenwald. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram or you know any of those things really. Um, remember as well, if you've not, if you've had, not, haven't had enough of me yet, why don't you go and listen to Revelation and see how I became like this? It's an audible original. It's um, me talking about awakening experiences, the application of spiritual ideas into ordinary life. Is there any other kind? Also, above the noise is out on this platform, so you can just go now and have a little meditate, unwind, refresh yourself, get into it. And if you're not a member of my mailing list at russellbrand.com yet, yeah, go and join it. In the meantime, why don't you go and listen to Edward Snowden? or Khan Ross, whistleblowers and insiders talking about stuff or go back and listen to Candice Owen. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin. Keep looking at YouTube for new videos. Thank you for this. Go meditate on Above the Noise and Under the Skin, all only from Luminary. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin Goodbye.